everyone. Uh, welcome to Disrupt. We're back this week talking with Dr. Priscilla Vald, who's a professor of English and the former director of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Duke University. We're so excited. We're going to talk to her today about the intersection between climate change, environmental justice, and feminism, critical race theory, and queer theory. Got it. It's a great conversation. Stay tuned. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if you wanted to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your research. So I think, I mean, I've always been interested in environmental justice and it's been an ongoing political commitment of mine. Um, I didn't work on it primarily until relatively recently, but I would say that um, you know, I'd go back to my last book, which was called uh, Contagion, Cultures, Carriers, and the Outbreak Narrative. And in that book, I was looking at narratives of disease emergence. And you can't talk about global health at all, let alone disease emergence, without really thinking about climate justice and climate change. So that's probably the first place I wrote about it extensively is in that book. Um, Increasingly, I've been writing explicitly about it and um, teaching classes in it. And I, I find that environmental justice specifically, right? Environmental questions of environmental racism and equity and um, that category is really foundational to pretty much anything else, any other kind of justice struggle we're having in our world at present because it is really rooted in a recognition of structural racism and the way our most fundamental categories, nature being as foundational really as it gets, um, are, are um, rooted in um, or are foundational for the structural racism and structural inequities of our world at large, whether you're talking about economics or politics or um, culture, it, it's all coming out of conceptions of nature and of the naturalization of our categories, uh, which I can unpack for you. But so for me, um, this has to be a foundational uh, set of questions for any kind of um, justice work we want to do in the world. And I feel like that really touches on something that we've talked a lot about is how everything intersects and you can't, you can't look at one issue like environmental justice or climate change without understanding how um, women are impacted, specifically women of color are impacted, women of color in the global south are impacted and you have to take all of these intersections as a whole or your analysis is just incomplete and whatever policy recommendations you make based off of that is still going to be incomplete and can even perpetuate more harm. Absolutely. And I don't mean to suggest that every single person who wants to write about any question of justice has to start with environmental justice. I, I'm not saying that at all, but just that for me, conceptually, um, I think about nature, the term, as foundational to any um, cosmology, 
And so therefore for me, it is a place to jump off from um, thinking about all of our inequities because it is foundational for our cosmologies or it is at least um, registering our cosmologies. I, that's very abstract. And if you want me to unpack that, I'm happy to do it, but, um, but yes. And I agree with you that um, there's nothing, no population that isn't impacted by these questions. So then if we think about it from that lens, how do we bring in queer theory um, to deal with environmental justice? So queer theory is a really broad term. And I wanna go back to my own um, engagement in queer theory, feminist theory, and critical race theory from the um, 1980s, early 1980s. And, um, you know, intersexualism is a very specific term that involves legal questions that comes into play much later. But um, women of color feminists were engaging in what we now think of as intersectional practices dating way back, certainly the 70s and 80s. You know, people like Audre Lorde and Barbara Christian and um, uh, Bernice Johnson Regan and Gloria Anzaldua, et cetera. So, um, so I go back there. And one of the, I, I have a wonderful colleague who works in queer theory named Taylor Black. And he, he has a great metaphor. And he says, all of these um, identity, things that began as identity uh, categories, he thinks of as railroad tracks that run in parallel and sometimes intersect you know, I like to think of it almost as a as an Alfred Stieglitz photograph of the trains, you know, all coming, the tracks coming together and going apart. And, and so I think all of these categories began in the, I mean, you can go way back. I don't want to ever give an origin point, but certainly in the 60s, there were really important um, movements in uh, feminism, um, gay rights, uh, ethnic studies of all kinds. Um, that began with the injustices of those uh, faced by populations in the, you know, in those categories. But they evolved very quickly into a set of theoretical questions and methods. And they really got us to the notion of structural violence, structural racism, um, and, you know, the other violences that we're talking about that, you know, are, are really intersectional with that category. Um, and so I think of queer theory and, but each of them has a specific history that I wanna respect, I don't wanna lose. So for queer theory, the challenge, at least as I followed it at that time, the challenge was to the normalization of kinship categories specifically, things like the nuclear family. And that was tremendously important because it, again, got at the root of what we thought of as nature, right? That it was natural. Reproduction was about sexual reproduction of the nuclear family, man and woman into that family, producing children, raising them, socializing them, etc. So queer theory was really challenging those categories, not just at the social level, but at the natural level. The idea that, that you know, uh, heterosexuality was, was an expression of nature and somehow homosexuality 
same-sex desire was unnatural. And when that got challenged, that is a very important set of questions to challenge because they are so foundational to society. So how do I get that to climate change? Okay, once you are challenging nature in that way and saying, you know, what we think of as nature, those categories are really social categories we've imposed and then retroactively naturalized. We say they're coming out of nature, they are not. Once you begin to unsettle that, you can begin to unsettle not only our relation, our human relations, our social relations with each other, but the way that we inhabit the planet. And if we wanna address climate change, we have to unsettle our habits of occupancy, our habits of living on the planet, living with each other and living with other living organisms on the planet, we have to unsettle that at its core. We have to understand the way there is a constant structure that our structures, our social structures reproduce those habits of occupancy. If we cannot challenge that, we are not gonna be able to ever change our practices and we will not be able fundamentally to address these urgent issues of climate change. So that's where I think uh, one of the places, I mean, you can, there are people who talk about others, but that's where I would locate a very important um, uh, challenge coming from career theory to, uh, for climate change. That sounds like a, as you were discussing this, I was thinking about how revolutionary that would have to be. Right. Of like policy prescriptions, like the existing system that we have absolutely wouldn't work. And so that would take some really radical changes, it seems like, to incorporate some of these principles of queer and critical race and feminist theory into mm-hmm. public policy. Right, it would. And um, I think I think we need a radical shaking up. I mean, a, this has as horrible as this pandemic has been, it shows us that we're not occupying the planet in a salutary way. And it, it, I mean, if we don't have radical solutions right now and radical rethinkings at the core of that restructuring, we can't do it by just going to the policy changes and gradually making them. And I don't think we're gonna get far enough if we do it that way. We need a radical solution and we need a reimagining. And that sounds impossible, but I also think continuing as we are is more impossible if we wanna survive, let alone because of the inequitable ways in which we're inhabiting the world. I mean, there are social justice questions and there are survival questions. And I think they both need, they're both urgent and they are utterly related. They're not the exact same, but they're utterly related. I do not think we can survive if we don't address the social justice issues, the equity issues. One other thing I'd say, and this is not, you know, this is an offshoot, it's its own thing, but trans, right? And that's a, a certainly related to queer theory. I wouldn't, I would also make it its own category, but um, I am so excited about the trans movement because it is asking us to 
challenge our most fundamental biological assumptions, which is sexuality, not, not sexuality, sex, right? Sex, the idea that the one thing we can't question is we have men and women, right? That's it. And, um, you know, if you think about queer, we, we can say, okay, we have men and women, we can have same sex desire that we can, we can get there, but we still have men and women. Um, we can under, we can begin to challenge the genetic basis of rapes. We've been, that, that argument's been going on for a while. It's not, it's not over, believe me, but we're getting there. But to challenge the idea that even our assumption that the world has this binary division between men and women, to challenge that is as radical as you can get. And once you get people saying, maybe my most fundamental biological assumptions were not accurate, once you unsettle that, you can start to address these really radical habits of thought. It's an unsettling. And if you can get people to think it, where, you know, think about where we can go from there. It reminds me a lot of the, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but the decolonizing the mind movement. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a very similar idea of we can mm -hmm. unsettle these base assumptions about our life and really unpack what's under there. And it's such important work, you know, right. doing that because that's how it starts. And then everything follows from there. Right. And so, you know, race was, was really the first thing that got radically challenged then sexuality, okay, maybe, maybe this is natural. Maybe we have been thinking wrong. Gender's the last one, right? I'm not saying it's the most important. I think all of them are tremendously important in the world. I think again, they're, you know, different railroad tracks. My own work has been more in critical race theory than, than anywhere else. But, um, and I think, you know, for equity and global relations, you know, it's where, where I start but to challenge our most fundamental biological assumption that everyone thought was unchallengeable or almost everyone. Um, and to see that take hold is, is really quite remarkable. Well, I mean, and clearly too, there's a vested interest in keeping these categories and these normative understandings of race, sex, gender in power. And I don't know, this might be too broad, too obvious of a question, but what do you see as the most significant barriers to a radical restructuring or unsettling of this knowledge base? Oh, <laughs> so many. Let's start with habits of thought. You know, I mean, we, there is a broad assumption that's different in different places, but that, you know, there are certain things in common that the world is a certain way. For instance, you know, gender, right? That there's a man, man and women. Um, and this is how society reproduces itself. Um, you are asking, so, so there's habits of thought. Those are the things that most interest me. But we also have a whole global economic system. And to, I mean, what? That's gonna somehow like radically change overnight? You know, obviously, there are very, there are a vested interests, power interests in keeping that the way it is. I mean, that let's start there. But there's also, you know, even I, as much as I want to see this radical resettling, if you pull the entire rug out 
right away. And there, there's a part of me that thinks that's we have to do that in, in some sense. But you're going to really, you know, that's a very dangerous thing to do as well. You know, when, when suddenly everything is up for grabs in a world as chaotic and unbalanced as ours, um, you know, the consequences are massive and we don't, and, and unpredictable. And typically the people who suffer most are the most vulnerable and the, the most um, uh, already the, the ones who occupy the most unjust position. And, you know, I'm not naive enough to think, ah, we can suddenly think differently about the world and join hands and sing Kumbaya. You know, I, I don't see that. Uh, that's not what's going to happen. And, and again, the power interests have the power, they have the weapons, they have the money. Um, they don't want this unsettling. So, you know, change is terrifying for everybody. And um, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, just thinking differently is going to get us there. I just think thinking differently is imperative as a beginning. Um, so, you know, we have a whole world system and, and hierarchies and, and power dynamics that is very vested in keeping things as they are or making them in, I think, our shared opinion worse. So outside of then like changing the mind, are there, do you think like education routes or training things that we should be trying to do to help people like have this kind of open mindset from the onset? <laughs> Yeah, I think education, I think the kind of activism we saw with the Black Lives Movement, which I think is a phenomenally well-run, important uh, movement. Um, I think the Black Lives Movement this summer did more to educate the world population um, than anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And it was tremendously, you know, at a time when we were all in this traumatic situation, it was tremendously hopeful and it remains tremendously hopeful. Um, I, I had a, a kind of rejuvenated belief that change was possible because of it. Um, it was magnificent. It is magnificent, it's not in the past, but but you know what happened over the summer for horrible traumatic reasons was, was really hopeful. So I think that, you know, the kind of activism that we've seen combined with education. Um, I think a cultural revolution that we're seeing, you know, I, one of the things that is going to come out of the pandemic and, and it's, and it's, um, you know, Black Lives Matter it's movement, et cetera, is going to be a real change in the arts in, you know, cultural and artistic production, which is a really important aspect of changing people's minds kind of, powerfully, um, seeing things represented on the screen or in, in literature or um, creative nonfiction or visual arts, all of those places. You know, representation is tremendously important to getting people to think differently about the world. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't say this earlier, but one of the things that you know, the, the kinds of challenges we're talking about, the structural challenges I was talking about, is getting people to see that the notion of the human, which is, again, we think of as a stable category, really isn't, right? The, that literally biologically, 
and very slowly, but you know, human beings are always changing as a species, as individuals, et cetera. But, um, but the concept of the human is changing as well. And again, I think that's something that people find very threatening, but if we can rethink, you know, if we see the notion of the human itself uh, changing and we understand it in a more ecological perspective, how we as human beings are constantly interacting with our microbes that keep us alive. There's a wonderful um, uh, essay by a scientist who's no longer alive, but um, a guy named Joshua Letterberg wrote in 2000, it was published in Science Magazine called Infectious History. And um, Joshua Letterberg was a Nobel laureate microbiologist. He was um, instrumental, he was really the leading voice in defining the concept of disease emergence. And what he says that is so magnificent in this piece is, you know, the, the most sophisticated and important thing he says we can do is change our metaphors. This is coming from a scientist, from a, you know, microbiologist. He said, we always think in terms of being at war with our microbes, us and them, um, you know, think about Darwin, warfare, competition. He says, we need to switch to ecological metaphors. And what he means by ecological is within the human body. The human body is an ecosystem and we, most of the microbes that we, that we interact with, that we have within us are not only benign, but necessary to our existence. And he was very interested in immunology and he talks about harnessing our beneficial microbes and thinking of ourselves as an ecosystem. But, and I think that's tremendously important, but I also want to expand it and say our planet is an ecosystem and just as the human body is an ecosystem with all these living organisms in relation to each other and dependent on each other, so we are as a planet. And we need to think more and more scientists are saying that even back in Darwin's day, they were saying this, but more and more they're saying it now that actually cooperation is if anything more beneficial to constructive evolution, to you know, evolutionary, advantage than competition and warfare. And I think the more we understand the human as in flux and as part of a planetary system, again, the more we can live both more socially equitably and more planetarily <laughs> productively um, in our world. Sort of along the lines of restructuring from a cooperative mindset. Um, and I know we already touched on the Black Lives Matter movement, but are there any examples of where or who we should be looking towards for examples of this cooperative restructuring, especially in terms of environmental justice? Um, that's a, a huge question. I mean, for environmental justice, there, there are actual journals that are called, um, you know, that, that have that name and related names, there are several. And I, I would just say read broadly in the area, but um, there's a lot of tremendously important work coming out of indigenous scholarship, like phenomenally interested, interesting. There are so many names I can't begin. I will throw out one, Kyle Powis White, who is, 
doing spectacular work, both as a writer and as someone who edits collections and gets this work out there. Um, he's one of many, but he's, you know, he's a good place to start. Um, uh, there are novelists. I think Leslie Marmon Silko's novels are, are great on this. Uh, Louise Erdrich, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm going to end this call and go, why didn't I mention, you know, these other five people, but, but I, you know, I could sit and name names, but I think, you know, thinking that way. And um, one of the early articulators of the field who's written some very uh, powerful and important manifestos is um, Robert Bullard. There's also the um, Principles of Environmental Justice um, by a group calling, called We the People of Color. You know, there, there are just, it's a very, very important field. And uh, I would just encourage people to read widely in environmental justice and uh, indigenous um, eco-criticism and environmental humanities. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you would like to touch on? No, I think, uh, I think you hit it all. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much just for your time and your expertise and all the um, other suggestions of um, people's work to look at. My pleasure. And I will, I'll send you a couple of um, pieces and, uh, and links and sites and they're just a beginning. What a great conversation. The more she talked about how queer theory and some of these other critical theories could be applied to climate change, the more I was like, of course. <laughs> I felt the same way, especially because just studying queer theory, it doesn't seem like there's a logical connection between um, things like the environment and environmental justice and queer theory. But what she said made so much sense. And now I feel like I can actually see how queer theory is used just in daily life. It reminded me a lot of, um, we have a classmate in one of our courses that always talks about making a unified critical theory um, and, you know, bringing together all of these different focuses on different things. So race and gender and sexuality and da da da, but they all have this focus on unsettling. Um, you know, what has been normed, what has been naturalized. And um, I think that for me was the real takeaway of just like finding and kind of unpacking the things that were like, of course, these things are normal. These things are present in everyday life and asking why that's the case. Totally. It was such a great conversation. I listened to it like five times. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Mostly for editing, but you know. <laughs> You're like I knew what she said. Yeah. Well, for now, that concludes our discussion on climate change and environmental justice. Next, we're going to be talking about nuclear issues, and we're super excited because there's a whole host of topics related to nuclear issues. Yes, and if you follow us on our Twitter account, you saw that we put out a poll. We have the results from that poll, so we were kind of trying to decide between nuclear proliferation, nuclear issues in the environment, nuclear waste, um, so based on the results of that poll, we'll start with that issue. Um, and then we'll see where we'll go from there and get some awesome experts and people in the field. And we're really excited to have that conversation. If you um, approach nuclear issues from a critical perspective and would like to be featured on the podcast, slide into our DMs or, you know, be old school and send us an email. We like that too. 
um, we can't wait to talk about all these things. Yeah. So our Twitter is at disruptrcp and our email is disruptrcp at gmail.com. Woo!